0: Blog Talk Radio. Of really answer life's most important questions, and I still fishing in it. And I'm your host Melissa Cantrell. And what we're going to do next for you is start the lesson. This is today is John MacArthur with the exaltation of the humble one. Here on Truthy Tolerate.
1: The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher. With grace to you. If you've never connected to Grace To You, we want to send you a free book by John called None Other, Discovering the God of the Bible. This detailed look at God's character can strengthen your trust in the Lord and deepen your love for Him. Request your free book by writing to noneother at gty.org. That's noneother at gty.org. The offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2019. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur.
2: This morning we're going to talk about the exaltation of the Son, the exaltation of the Son. Open your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. We have really been doing a series on unity in the church, which is of grave concern to our Lord Jesus Christ said to His disciples in the upper room the night of His betrayal that um, if you have love for one another, men will know that um, you belong to Me. By this shall all men know that you are My disciples, that you have love for one another. We've been talking about the fact that the church of Jesus Christ does not always demonstrate that kind of love that gives glory to our Lord. In fact, we're seemingly living in a time when there Is more hostility in the church, more rancor, more dispute, more efforts to isolate people, more concern about rights and privileges and power and status, and even turns to hatred and vengeance and demanding reparations and doing things that are divisive. And so we've been endeavoring to get back to what the Word of God says about unity in the church. That is the desire of our Lord. Obviously, Paul writes in Ephesians about one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope of your calling, one God and Father of us all. So do everything you can, as Paul says to the Colossians, to maintain unity in the bond of peace. We are one in Christ. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. We are to manifest our loving unity so the world can know that He has transformed us. It puts His glory on display. When there is division in the church, He is dishonored. And particularly in the world because it confuses them about the truth of the gospel and what it actually accomplishes. So we have been called to unity. And I've been saying to you over the last three weeks that unity is basically a result of something else. It's it's a result of love. And love is basically a result of humility. Only humble people love And only loving people will do what it takes to maintain unity. And that is the message of the Apostle Paul in Philippians. In fact, in chapter 1 and verse 27, he says, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." What would that be that would be worthy of the gospel of Christ? He says, "...so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are..." And here's what causes us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. To be worthy of bearing the name of Christ, we must be in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. There must be unity in the church. Paul then expands on that in chapter 2. So let's come down to chapter 2, and I want to read the first 11 verses before we look at the last part of this section. And I'll translate it as we have indicated. It should be translated for us to understand. Because there is encouragement in Christ, because there is consolation of love, because there is fellowship of the Spirit, because there is affection and compassion, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's the unity he's calling for. How does that happen? Verse 3 and following. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And here is the model to follow for humiliation. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is the model of humility. The Son of God, who was and always will be God, did not regard that equality with God, that eternal equality with God, something to hold on to, but divested Himself of the privileges of that identity, became a slave, became a man, came all the way down humbling himself to death and even the most ignominious death, dying on a cross. That's the model of humility. Never was one so high who descended so low. This is the attitude we need to have. And unless you're something more than Christ, you ought to be willing to humble yourself. He starts from eternal deity. We start from a sinful position. We need to humble ourselves, and He is our example. He was willing to step down from heaven all the way to death on a cross for us, for our salvation. Are we willing to humble ourselves, to love each other, to manifest the unity that will bring honor to Him? That's the point. And there's one final motivation here for this kind of humility. Verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is the exaltation of the Son, an incredibly rich portion of Scripture, one to be studied, one to be meditated upon. It speaks of the fact that the one who humbled himself before God was exalted by God to a place that was higher even than he had been before. There were new honors, new privileges that were his Even though He was the eternal God, even though He was all that God is, by His humiliation, He was then honored to a place with even more honor than He had had before. This is the model of humiliation. Follow Christ. Have this attitude in you. Which is to say, humble yourself and let God exalt you. If you're spending all your time trying to exalt yourself and make sure you get what you want, making sure that your life is full of rights and privileges and demands on the people around you, if you're concerned with exalting yourself, you're putting yourself in a very, very dangerous position. Let me tell you why. This is what our Lord said, and He said it three times as recorded in the New Testament. Once in the book of Matthew, twice in the book of Luke, it is recorded that he said this, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So take your choice. You can work very hard to exalt yourself, and God will humble you. Or you can humble yourself, and the Lord will exalt you. In Matthew chapter 5, as our Lord was speaking in the familiar Sermon on the Mount, He said this, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Hmm. So you're being insulted. You're being persecuted. Evil things are being said against you falsely. Rejoice and be glad. Because as you're being humbled, God is increasing your eternal reward. You want to embrace the things that humble you. Listen to what Peter said, 1 Peter 5. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. What does it mean, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God? Understand this, that God is sovereign, and whatever difficulties you are going through, whatever issues you face in life, they are within the framework of the mighty hand of God. And they are better for you if they humble you than they would be if they exalted you. God is opposed to the proud, people demanding their rights, gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It's not as if you're humbling yourself under the hand of men or even the hand of Satan. You're humbling yourself under the sovereign, mighty, providential hand of God, knowing that whatever you may suffer will be turned to eternal joy and gladness and reward. Listen to the Apostle James, chapter 4. God is opposed to the proud. Same thing. But gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Again, not under the mighty hand of God this time, but in the presence of the Lord, realizing that anything that comes into your life that humbles you, that diminishes you, happens in the presence of the Lord. Nothing is outside His plan outside His purpose, outside His purview, and He will exalt you. He will exalt you. This truth is expressed even in the Old Testament in one particular portion of Psalm 119. The psalmist says in verse 161, Princes persecute me without cause but my heart stands in awe of your words. Princes persecute me without cause. Life's not been fair to me. I've been falsely accused, unjustly treated, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil or great treasure. So here is the psalmist saying I'm being unjustly treated, and injustice is a reality in life, Persecution is a reality in life. But in the midst of it all, he says, I stand in awe of your word and I trust in your promise to lift me up. Job had something of that in mind when he said, Though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. The worst that can happen to you here." turns to the best that can happen to you. That is the very presence of God Himself. The Apostle Paul says, I have learned to be content to suffer. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's in my weakness that God's strength becomes pronounced. James says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So even in the midst of the trial, there is benefit, spiritual benefit. In the midst of the trial, we are... Going through, we are being perfected. James says it has a perfecting work. Paul says it has an empowering work. Even in the midst of the trial and the suffering and the injustice and the things that are unfair, the Lord is shaping us, humbling us, shapes us. The Lord is also, in the same very difficult circumstances, adding up our eternal reward for those who suffer for Him will be glorified. With him, And nothing can change that because nothing can ever separate us from His love. So, the message of the Apostle Paul is a powerful, powerful message. The humiliation of Jesus in itself is a glorious theological reality, but Paul is using it here as an illustration of the kind of conduct he wants from believers. You need to humble yourself. And however much you think you deserve, you don't deserve what Christ rightly deserved and willingly yielded up. You're far less than He is. And if He humbled Himself from a place so high, infinitely beyond where you are, to a place so low, far beyond where you're asked to go, who are you to be unwilling as a sinner, to humble yourself so that God can exalt you. That's the message. Now we went through verses 5 through 8, the humiliation of Christ last time. Let's look at verses 9 to 11, the exaltation of Christ. And this is really the capstone on Paul's entire presentation here. He wants you to see how high Christ was exalted. So that you will be motivated to lower yourself, to humble yourself, and let God exalt you. Now remember the principle, we read it in several places. God hates the proud. God resists the proud. But God gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves. Humble yourselves and God will exalt you. That is the message of Scripture. In the case of what Paul is saying here, he's saying humble yourself to the place described in verse 3 where you do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind you regard one another as more important than yourselves and the interests of others more important than your own. That is the attitude of Christ. He was willing to empty Himself of all that He possessed as the eternal Son for the sake of others who were undeserving. This is the model. We are to go low, and then God will lift us up. Verses 9 to 11 are so rich that you could literally go from this portion to many, many other Scriptures throughout the New Testament, to see how this is affirmed. I'm going to resist doing that for the sake of time. But I want you to catch something of what these verses are saying about Christ's exaltation. And keep in mind, this is to motivate you to say, it's more important for me to be exalted by God, therefore I humble myself, than it is for me to exalt myself and be humbled by God. When God exalts someone, He exalts him to the highest place. And we see this in the case of Christ. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. First we come to the source of His exaltation. It is God. God highly exalted him. For this reason... God highly exalted him. What reason? Because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He humbled himself to die on the cross, to die as God's chosen lamb, a sacrifice for sin. Because he came all the way down to the cross, God lifts him all the way up to the highest exaltation in the heavens. God is the source of His exaltation. God is the one who exalts His Son. Because of what He did in His suffering and humiliation, God highly exalted Him. It's a Greek word, super exalted Him. Uh, There wouldn't be enough prefixes or adjectives to describe the elevation. He exalted Him in a way that even was beyond the exaltation that He had had before. God raised him from the dead. God drew him into heaven. God seated him at his right hand. God crowned him with honor and glory. God exalted him. This became the message of the apostles. Peter on the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2, verse 31 is speaking about the death of Christ. That Christ had died and was raised from the dead. He was neither abandoned to Hades nor did His flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God, raised up again to which we are all witnesses. And then verse 33. This is Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God. Verse 34 quotes from the Old Testament, Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. All the way down to the cross, And because he humbled himself to the cross, God exalted him to the highest throne in heaven. Again, Peter and the apostles in chapter 5 of the book of Acts, defending the fact that they must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a Savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God exalted Him because He had accomplished His work on the cross. The Apostle Paul says in chapter 1 of Ephesians that when God exalted Him, He seated Him, verse 20, at His right hand in the heavenlies far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God exalted Him. God highly exalted Him. Placed Him at His right hand. Far above, not just above, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. Again, God exalts Christ, Because Christ humbled Himself, God exalted Him. Perhaps the most wonderful of all revelations of this exaltation is found in Hebrews chapter 1. You want to look at Hebrews 1 and just follow the marvelous truth of this chapter. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, "...whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He, the Son, had made purification of sins, that is, died on the cross, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels." as he has inherited a more exalted or excellent name than they. In other words, God exalted him to a place far above the angels. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. never said that to angels. And when he again brings the Prototokos, the premier one into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship Him. And of the angels, he says, who makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions, above the angels, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. The eternal reign of Christ. To which of the angels says he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. They're just ministering spirits, so not to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Christ is exalted, says Hebrews chapter 1, far above the angels. Of course, Jesus as God is incapable of being more than God. He didn't become more of who He was. It's just that there were more honors that belonged to Him. When He came into the world, He was the Son of the Most High, says Mark chapter 5, verse 7. You can't be any higher than the Son of God. But by the end of His redemptive work on earth and His ascension back into heaven and His coronation, He had won the final victory. He had ratified the covenant of salvation. He had accomplished redemption. The Father had then raised Him from the dead, exalted Him to His right hand, and so He is now exalted as a prince and a Savior who has accomplished redemption. Around the throne are myriads and myriads of angels, 10,000 times 10,000 angels, and they all worship Him. His exaltation is not some alteration in His nature. It is simply that He receives more honor for the accomplishment of the cross. More honor. He becomes the king who has crushed the serpent's head. He becomes the prophet who has spoken the truth, provided the gospel work that becomes the heart of the truth to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth for salvation. He always was the priest, but now he enters into a level of priesthood in which he always, Hebrews 7, Intercedes; He ever lives to intercede for His people, to bring them to glory. He is more honored than He's ever been because He has accomplished God's redemptive purpose. In Romans 14, verse 9, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living." He died and rose that He might be Lord, Lord of the dead and Lord of the living. The many portions of Scripture that speak about that, that His his return to heaven signaled a new place of authority. Listen to Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. That was the Father's good pleasure. Second Peter 1.17, one more scripture. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and there's the point, he didn't become more than he was. He was already the God-man from his incarnation, but when he went back to heaven, he received honor and glory from God the Father. But he had had tasted that before, when an utterance was made about him by the majestic glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father was well pleased with him, and the Father declared that he would be exalted and honored and given glory for his redemptive work even before he had gone to the cross. So, first thing to understand about the exaltation of Christ is that God is the source. God is the one who exalted Christ. Many other scriptures speak to that. The second, how are we to understand this new position? The title of His exaltation answers that. The title. So we saw the source of the exaltation is God. The title. And what is the title? Back to verse 9 and bestowed on Him, gave Him, granted Him, the name which is above every name. Hebrews 1.4, I just read, a name more excellent than the angels. Ephesians chapter 1, a name higher than all rule, authority, power, and dominion in every name that is named. This is the ultimate name above every other name. A name. A name a title. This is the title. What is this name? What is this title? It is not Jesus. That was already His name. It is a name that speaks of absolute sovereignty. It was common to signal the new stage in someone's life by giving him a new name. Abram became Abraham, and Jacob became Israel, and Saul became Paul, and Simon became Peter. Jesus was given a new name as well. What is that name? It's given in verse 11. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the new name. It is the name that is above every name. The name Jesus is not the name above every name. That's just a reference to the Old Testament name Joshua. A lot of people had that name. A lot of people still have that name. Jehovah saves. But this is a name that is above every name. It is the name Lord. No other name than Lord, or if you will, an Old Testament equivalent, Yahweh, can be the name above all other names. The whole context flows to that confession Down in verse 11, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus was a very common name. Jesus was the name given to Him in His humiliation. But He is given a name above every name. This name causes every knee to bow. Jesus had many names, titles, Messiah, Emmanuel, Son of God, Son of Man, Christ, the Word, But Lord is the name above every name. Kurios, it means absolute ruler. He is Lord by His Father's doing. We don't make Him Lord. No one does. He is Lord. The great Christian cry, Jesus is Lord. That is our confession. He is Lord. It indicates power. Absolute power. Absolute authority. Dignity. Honor. Dominion. Worthiness. Rule. If you want to be a Christian, Romans 10 says, confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. It was His resurrection by which God honored Him and established Him as Lord. He raised Him from the dead, drew Him to His throne, and crowned Him Lord. The book of Revelation says, King of kings and Lord of lords. So the title of the exaltation of Christ is Lord, Lord of lords, Lord above all power, all authority, all dominion, every name that is named in this age or the age to come. Now what is the response? The third thing that Paul points to is a response to his exaltation. Verse 10, so that, this is the purpose of his exaltation, so that. At the name of Jesus, not the name Jesus, but the name of Jesus, which is Lord, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what is the response? Worship. This is the only appropriate response to Christ. And ultimately, will be the response of everyone. Did you hear that? Everyone will one day bow the knee to Christ. Those of us who confess Jesus is Lord now, we have bowed the knee. Those who reject Christ and go into eternity without Him end up in eternal punishment in hell. Will every moment of their tenure in hell, every everlasting moment, be recognizing that in fact Jesus is Lord and they failed to acknowledge it? He is Lord. The idea that He is Lord over those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth is not intended to make three distinctions between beings and locations, but simply to say that's everywhere. You're either in heaven or on earth or in the earth or under the earth. Covers the ground. Every knee will bow. That's a very interesting statement, by the way, because that's borrowed from Isaiah 45. And for the Word of God to say that God is going to exalt Jesus Christ, give Him the name Lord and make every being in the universe bow the knee to Him is an amazing statement. It would be very offensive to people who don't think Jesus is God. But go back to Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, where this statement is originally made, God is declaring Himself as the true and living God. In the 44th chapter of Isaiah, God shows the folly of idols. How ridiculous to make a God out of wood or stone, when there's only one God, only one true God. He says that toward the end of chapter 44. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, and the Maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by Myself and spreading out the earth all alone. It is I, it is I, repeats again and again, it is I, it is I. In chapter 45, verse 21, Declare and set forth your case, indeed let them consult together Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides Me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except Me. Turn to Me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Strong words. In chapter 46, look at verse 5. This, this whole surrounding context focuses on the one true and living God. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, hire a goldsmith and make it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It doesn't move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And at the end of verse 11, Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. God is the only God. But look at verse 23 in chapter 45. I have sworn by Myself the word has gone out from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess allegiance. That's, that's exactly what is said in Philippians. But here it belongs only to God. Only to me every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Only to me. So back to Philippians, when you read there that God declares that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, that is a declaration of the deity of Christ. That is an affirmation of what we read back in chapter 2, verse 6, that He existed in the morphe of God, that He was equal to God. Every knee will bow to Him. There's only one true God, but one true God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the one true God, the Son, came into the world, humbled Himself. The Father then exalted Him, gave Him the title Lord over everyone, and now commands that the entire universe of conscious beings bow their knee to Him. Whether they are angels or men and women, they all bow. Whether they are holy angels or damned angels, whether they are saints or sinners, whether they are in heaven or hell, they all bow the knee and they all ultimately confess Jesus is Lord. Every tongue will confess that. Every tongue meaning will acknowledge it. Every tongue, whether in hell or heaven, will say, yes, Jesus is Lord. We rejected Him. We refused Him. But He is Lord. This God will do for Him, exalt Him to this level, so that everyone bows the knee to Him. What an astonishing exaltation. But what is the reason? What's the motive? The source is God. The title is Lord. The response is worship. But what's the purpose? Back to verse 11. To the glory of God the Father. Because the Father ultimately gets glory. To the glory of the Father. The Father is honored when the Son is worshipped. The Father is honored when the Son is worshipped. The Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The Father is honored when the Son is worshipped. God is exalted by what Christ has accomplished. God is glorified when you honor His Son. And in the end, the entire conscious universe of beings in heaven or hell will all confess Jesus is Lord, and that will affirm what God has declared, and God will be glorified who will be glorified in judgment as well as in eternal blessing. Ultimately, everything resolves itself in God's final glory. The gospel, then, is the story of humiliation and exaltation. The one who is God stoops all the way down to become man takes the role of a servant, willing to die, die on a cross. And because He accomplished our redemption, the Father exalts Him back to where He was with new honors and new glory for having accomplished redemption. Gives Him a name above every name, the name Lord. Declares that anybody who comes to Him must say, Jesus is Lord. Lord. And this in itself is the glory of the redemptive work of Christ. But in this passage, this is an illustration to you and me that you would be a whole lot better off to humble yourself and let God glorify you than to glorify yourself and cause Him to humble you. Because when God glorifies you, He takes you to places that are unimaginable. Bible says He seats you on the throne with His Son. He makes you an heir of all things. Eye hasn't seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love Him. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So life hasn't given you everything you want. Embrace that. Be humbled by that. Be unconcerned about your own issues. Give yourself in love to others. Be a part of the unity of the church and wait until the Lord exalts you with an eternal weight of glory. The next verse in 2 Corinthians 4 says, "...we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal. Things that are not seen are eternal. Don't try to squeeze everything you think you deserve out of this life. Humble yourself and wait for the unimaginable things that God has for you in your eternal inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and reserved in heaven. Again, the message here is primarily a message of Christian conduct. The glory of the incarnation, the glory of the exaltation of the Son of God are designed by God to demonstrate to us what it means to humble yourself and what it means to be exalted by God. You start and I start from a place far lower than Christ, right? To humble ourselves. And yet, we will be lifted up and exalted to the very place where Christ is. This is the kindness and grace of God. Don't spend your life trying to demand your rights, trying to get what you think you deserve, being angry at people or vengeful. Be humble. Don't be conceited. Don't be self-centered. Be concerned about others. Be loving. Do everything you can to create unity and leave the future exaltation to the Lord because when He does it, it's going to be so far beyond anything you can even imagine. That's what you see when you understand that we will be exalted with Christ in His throne, in His glory. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the power that it has to speak to our hearts. We thank You for the glories of it. It has a glory all its own, as You do. It has a power that sometimes overwhelms us. It convicts us, and yet at the same time it encourages us. May we be a people who are of one mind and one spirit, with the same love, humbling ourselves in loving ways to serve one another so that we can put on display the glory of the gospel in a transformed church. We pray this not only for our own church, but we pray it for all other places where Christ is named and dishonored by discord and disunity and pride and demands Humble your people so that they can be exalted in your proper time. That's our prayer. And we include our own selves in that for your glory. Amen.
1: You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Master's University, where John serves as Chancellor, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace TU reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
4: of coal. This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for God's word and the gospel. Our planet has many layers of coal. Now, the secular story is that coal forms very slowly over millions of years. But coal is really a consequence of the global flood. You see, around the world, there are miles of rock layers laid down by water. And in between many of those layers are these coal layers. They were formed when rising flood waters of Noah's time buried massive amounts of vegetation. And then heat and pressure converted that vegetation into coal. It doesn't take millions of years. Scientists can make coal in just a few months. Coal, which is a consequence of the judgment of the flood, is quite useful to humans. It's a reminder of God's provision,
5: even in judgment. Get equipped to defend the truth and authority of God's word from the very beginning at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com.
4: This is Ken Ham, and our 510 foot long Noah's Ark is located in northern Kentucky. We find oil in many rock layers around the world. Now one of the chemicals found in oil is porphyrin. It breaks down quickly around heat or oxygen. This means that vegetation that makes oil had to have been buried very quickly before the porphyrin could break down. Now there's very few environments today where that happens. Certainly not enough to explain the vast oil reserves we have today. Something different had to happen in the past. And that was the global flood of Noah's Day. It rapidly buried massive amounts of vegetation, which turned to oil. It didn't take millions of years.
5: Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. And listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com.
4: A glittery reminder this is Ken Ham publisher of the award-winning magazine for the family called answers have you ever wondered how we got diamonds now it's popular to claim they're billions of years old and we've all heard the saying diamonds are forever but they're really not you see diamonds have been tested for traces of carbon-14 now carbon-14 is only detectable up to 80,000 years at most So if diamonds are billions of years old, there shouldn't be any carbon-14 in them. But there was. Diamonds aren't billions of years old. They were created by God at the beginning and brought closer to the surface during the unique conditions of the global flood. Next time you see a diamond, remember, it's an example of God's mercy, even in judgment.
5: Discover more about the true history of the universe when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
6: Let me start this off with a hallelujah To Jesus, the sovereign ruler This is not a rumor Got the truth, so we about to school you Check out a style maneuver Shout it to you like the loudest group Christ brought us up from out the sewer We don't have to doubt the future Crash in our verses As we bask in this worship You asking the purpose Partly to set cash from the furnace To Jesus' extravagant service Immaculate purchase He was smashing the serpent And we only scratching the surface He the that was
2: conceived In the womb of a virgin The sun emerges in the manger While the angels serenade him the birth of the Savior The greater envy came a man came as a lamb and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand in the place of the wicked, on the cross he was lifted But we considered him stricken and afflicted Just like the prophets predicted He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent And laid out his life to offer atonement He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis Of insufficient, the blessed,
7: the glory Ascended, transcendent, difficult to comprehend Independent of space and time But
3: presently present, suspending the heavens With speech, from coast to coast He speaks peace to wind and seas Got heavenly hosts easily posted on bended knees Controls the cosmos with the most Authority, so we both in moment. Most exalted King Christ the priest He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome hiller, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer, no goddess real. Yeah, we can take any time in the scripture. what the gate at the prime in the picture. See his light sun right in the night, and it's the mighty in the diamond in the mixture. See his name at all the Ronaldo. When he came for the loss that he found low, he was tamed in floss all around, but remained for the manger the cross or the clown. Yo, Satan had a shirt rolled on him. Fight for the rope but dope and then all the to the eyes of the S to the E to the N. That's what we hoping in. Risen on it, spell check. The risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hellbound, now I'm spellbound. So Word is born. I'm a born servant to the word of life. Oh, uh, Call me a sellout. I was bought with a price. We got to hope that won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's thinking. We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven known earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, was aware, of the delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly everything that orbits around His glory, supporting He is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite, son, preeminent, the name, par excellence, prenom phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon. You see, the father of cosmology, the abba of astronomy. He's pottery or pottery. It's shocking. Jesus died for me. The father, He adopted me and constantly provides for me, whether or not I got degrees. You gotta see His odyssey from sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery. to resurrected bodily, apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't acknowledge him properly. You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent. It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment. Study the development from Old and New Testament. You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age. It's relevant. Christ is on its center stage. Forget religious sentiments. The center on man for something less is what you're settling. He is the most excellent exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance. Yeah. The sin of sinners that separated and segregated that severed the relations between man and his maker and placed Christ on his costly cross and compensated his life, death and resurrection, emancipated
5: and gave us freedom from
3: it all, freedom from the effects of the fall, freedom from Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden and from the law, so the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause with hands raised, praising his name, singing glory to God. Christ, is the free. Christ is the free
4: fast-forming chalk beds this is Ken Ham author of the eye-opening book six days and church compromise did you know chalk is actually the fossil remains of the shells of many microscopic creatures Well, supposedly it took 40 million years to form the chalk beds we see today. As tiny creatures died, their skeletons mixed with lime on the ocean floor and the ooze eventually became chalk. Well mixed in with these tiny marine creatures are fossils of fish, turtles, pterosaurs, sharks and even dinosaurs. So how did the large ocean and land creatures end up uneaten on the ocean floor? Should we chalk it up to millions of years? No. The layers of soft limestone we use as chalk were formed quickly during the global flood.
5: Listen to this program again or share it with others at AnswersRadio.com and discover more about the true history of the universe when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com.
3: the day. Beautiful, beautiful. You never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. The beautiful, beautiful. You never change. you're beautiful, beautiful. You never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change.
4: You're beautiful, beautiful. You never change, never change. The greatest gift. This is Ken Ham, editor of the eye-opening book, Glasshouse, Shattering the Myth of Evolution. Well, all this week, we've been looking at examples of God's provision, even in his judgment. We've seen that coal, oil, diamonds, and chalk are only available to us because of the judgment of Noah's flood. But all these things should remind us of God's greatest gift for those under his judgment, salvation. You see, everyone at the time of the flood was a sinner, deserving death but God provided an ark of salvation for Noah and his family. We're all sinners today, and we deserve death, but God has provided us a modern-day ark of salvation, Jesus Christ. If we repent and trust Christ for salvation, we'll be saved from God's judgment and receive eternal life.
5: Plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com.
3: Out of Haiti, the largest, most powerful earthquake in the region's history. As and has... federal judge's ruling is allowed to stand. This year's National Day of Prayer could likely be the country's last. Is I will be done. I'm blessed. As this happened. happen.
6: The number of
8: people worldwide has reached one billion for the first time since 1970.
3: So let's day, a daily bread. And forget what our trespasses. A few moments
6: ago, something crashed into the south
3: tower of the World Trade Center. But the was from evil, the thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
2: This
3: is my Father's Word.
9: Jews and Muslims worship the same God. While there are many ways to slice this bread, let's make Jesus the issue. Verse number 1 from the Bible, Colossians 2, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, Jesus is God. Number 2. John chapter 5, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. This is important. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And verse number 3, John chapter 14, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is why Jesus must be the issue in answering this big question. Some people think, well, the God of the Old Testament, that's God, the Father, right? Well, in a sense, yes, but remember what Jesus said. If you do not believe in the Son rightly, you don't have the Father either. Let's see what a dead guy said. A.W. Tozer said, Jesus is not one of many ways to approach God, nor is he the best of several ways. He is the only way. So do Jews and Muslims worship the same God? While we might be tempted to think they worship the Father part of the Trinitarian God, they do not, because they do not have a right belief in the son jesus is the crux of the issue of big implications number 1 the quran's depiction of god slash allah is so different than the way the bible presents god they simply cannot be worshiping the same deity And number two while we feel a closer affinity to god's chosen race both religions muslims and jewish people are equally lost and finally the knowledge that neither of these religions has a sacrifice for their sins should cause us to want to evangelize them. Big question. Do Jews and Muslims worship the same God as Christians? Short answer. Neither Jews nor Muslims believe that Jesus is God. This means they worship a different God. If you're a Christian, would you please consider liking, subscribing, or sharing this video? If, however, you're a pagan, please get saved. And then like, subscribe, or share this video.
8: To create man and women uh, in his own image but at the same time I believe science with the evolution came to where we are today
10: so Eve was a hearing primate?
8: Mm, well we don't really know I don't think I, I personally don't know any images of what she would look like all we know is depictions through the media and through our cultural right of what it, she, she was perceived as a human and I think she was a human I believe just like the people then were so I don't it would be kind of weird if she was a monkey I
10: don't think so or a primate as you'd say do you know if there's any proof that Darwinian evolution that man and primates have a common ancestor? There's some uh, uh, Bone structure That we
8: have Like our tailbone For example I think that I believe Was a sign of uh, evolution uh, that As it decreased We didn't, no longer needed it so, and I think it's, it's, there's a lot of muscles that we don't have no use for. So, Such as? Uh, the tailbone, there's some bones in our toes that we don't really need. Um, I think maybe, uh, our, some organs that we have, like our appendix, we don't need that at all. And it's
10: Actually, you do need your appendix. It's to do with the immune system. Did you know that? They just discovered that recently. And it's not a tailbone. It's the coccyx vertebrae, and without it, you wouldn't be able to go to the bathroom. It's got a function. It's nothing to do with the tail. And you say you got some toe bones you don't need, so we'll amputate them and see if you can walk. The video will continue in a few seconds, but I wanted to remind you to please subscribe to our channel and click on the notifications bell. And don't forget to like, comment, and share. Thank you. There's no evidence. It's all blind faith. There's evidence of speciation and adaptation. Birds' beaks adapt, and there's different, well, there's speciation within kinds, such as the Chihuahua and the Great Dane. It's great variety within the dog kind but animals don't change kinds they stay as dogs and cats and birds and that's what Darwin theorized that there was a change of kinds but there's no evidence for that uh, do you believe God exists
8: yes I do believe that God exists
10: um, do you think he's happy with you or angry at you
8: in terms of uh, your morality oh, Morality. I, I believe God would be happy with me he's happy I believe so you think you're a good person I, I like to believe so yes
10: okay. how many lies have you told in your life too yeah. many to count you ever stolen something
8: Yes, I have.
10: Ever used God's name in vain? Yes, I have. Jesus said, if you look with lust, you commit adultery in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust?
8: Yes, I have.
10: So David, I'm not judging you, but you just told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterate heart, mm-hmm. and you have to face God on judgment day. So if he judges you by the Ten Commandments, we've looked at four, you're going to be innocent or guilty?
8: If we look at that way, I would be considered guilty, yes. Heaven or hell? To do that, standard, I would be going to hell.
10: Now, does that concern you?
8: It does. It does. I would like to change my ways and try to become a better person, and overall better Christian.
10: Well, try that in a court of law. If you say to a judge, Judge, I've broken the law, but I'm going to change my ways in the future, he's going to say, so you should. You shouldn't be doing wrong. And you're going to jail because you're broken the law. So there's no way you can be saved from hell outside of the mercy of God. What did God do so sinners wouldn't have to end up in hell? Any idea?
8: Uh, He gave us his one only begotten son to die on the earth.
10: Uh, Do you understand the legal implications of that?
8: Of him dying on this planet? That Jesus was pinned to a cross uh, by Roman soldiers, was crucified, and then was risen in three days?
10: Legal implications of this. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus came and paid the fine. It's as simple as that. That's why he cried out, it is finished on the cross. In other words, the debt has been paid. If you're in court, even though you're guilty, if someone pays you a fine, the judge can let you go legally. He can legally do it, even though you're guilty. Well, God can legally let us go. Can we let death sentence all because of Jesus' death and resurrection? He paid the fine. rose from the dead. What you have to do is repent and trust in him. Now, at the moment, you're like a man on the edge of a plane 10,000 feet up. He knows he's going to have to jump, and his plan is this. He's going to flap his arms, try and save himself. And I'd say, to, hey, don't do that. Trust the parachute. Trust the parachute alone. So what I'm saying to you, David, is transfer your trust from yourself to the Savior. Don't say I'm a good person because you're not. It's not going to work on Judgment Day. You're like the rest of us. Transfer your trust to the Savior. Does this make sense? It does make sense. And the moment you do that, you are born again. You'll come out of darkness into light. You'll come from death into life. And there's no way you'd accept that man made God as a primate. You'd say Jesus was right when he said, in the beginning, God created male and female. And so, um, has this given you something to think about today? A little food for thought, yeah. A little food for thought? Or is some big food for thought? good meal. Yeah, good meal, because this is your eternity. There's nothing more important than Jesus won... On the day of judgment, many would say to him, Lord, Lord, we did many wonderful works in your name, and he'll say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. So there's nothing more important than your eternal salvation. Do you have a Bible at home? I do. When did you last read it? Uh, two days ago. When did you last feed your stomach? This morning. So what's your first in your life, your Bible or your belly? My,
8: my stomach.
10: So put the Bible first. You'll never go wrong. Job said, I have esteemed the words of his mouth. More than my necessary food. Hey, Dave, thanks for your patience with me. I really appreciate
0: it. That is from Living Waters Christian teaches evolution about the human body. And before that, we had Big Questions, Short Answers. From Wretched, and now we have, this is Wretched with how to discern better than most discernment blogs.
9: Like it or not, you have a discernment blog. While you may not write articles on the Internet, and far too many people are these days, nevertheless, you are judging Constantly. Uh, that is why you would do well to study the biblical rules of engagement. How it is that you and I are supposed to judge fellow believers, people who are not sure are fellow believers, and downright rank heretics. Do you ever consider any biblical practices? Before you go about the business of being a theological ginsu knife, maybe, just maybe, you've been quick to chop and to dice and to slice, and you haven't pondered, hmm, how should I go about doing this? This little book, called Judge Not, contains 16 rules of engagement available at wretched.org. Let's make our way through them. Shall we, if you apply, frankly, even some of these before you start discerning and judging other people's theology or behavior you will be so far ahead of i kid you not most discernment blogs and that's kind of sad the rule of engagement number one our starting position should not be everyone's a heretic except me Our starting position should be one of love that hopes all things. My hope should not be that somebody's intentionally misleading and fleecing people. My hope should be that I'm either confused or I've misunderstood a fellow believer. This rule alone will elevate the dialogue higher than what we see on cable news. (laughs) It's pretty low par. When it comes to discerning if somebody is a true teacher or a false teacher, I want to start with a charitable attitude. That doesn't mean you're selling out. It doesn't mean that you suddenly are are agreeing with everything the heretic is saying. It's like, no, no, no. I want to hope for the best. I don't want this person to be a heretic. I want this person to be saved and saved. Then maybe just confused. Well, maybe they just misspoke. Maybe I misheard it. But I start out with a different attitude than Washington, D.C., rule of engagement, two. We should always judge with a humble attitude, acknowledging that any correct understanding that you and I have of the Bible is a gift from God. If everything we know about him has been revealed to us by him? How can we possibly be snooty toward our fellow saints? We have been given by God everything that we know about him because the darkened mind can't get anything. He's illuminated us. His Holy Spirit has shown us and led us into truth. He has been progressively revealing truth to us. <laughs> I can't believe you don't know this, man. Dude, honestly, seriously, don't you read your Bible? Did you see that guy preaching? Wow, I wonder when the last time was he took a systematic theology course. That is not the right heart when it comes to discernment. I can't criticize others for not having what has been given to me, uh, rule of engagement three, We are to judge the teachings of the other Christians. But that does not mean we have to reprimand every carelessly uttered word by a fellow believer. We never turn off our Berean discernment filters. Anytime another Christian speaks of spiritual things, we judge. But that doesn't mean we need to chirp up for each and every perceived inaccurate statement to demonstrate How annoying that is. Have you been to this dinner party where the husband is trying to tell a story, but the wife stands at the ready to correct him? You know, a few years ago, we went on a family vacation. Actually, dear, it was almost two decades ago, and it wasn't the whole family. Jenny had to take the SATs again, so she couldn't join us. <laughs> right, okay, dear. So at any rate, about 20 years ago, we went up to the Boundary Waters. Actually, it wasn't the Boundary Waters. Technically, we were on the far side of Lake Malak, so it wasn't considered the Boundary Waters. <laughs> okay, and we decided to go fishing. We were in these canoes. They were paddle boats, love. And, and we were casting out the lure. We had these amazing flies that we were using. Dear, we stopped at the bait shop. They were actually worms that we were using for the fishing, and then we caught some amazing northern pike. We didn't catch a single northern pike, they were all crappie stuck. Stop correcting me. That is how it feels when somebody is constantly, perpetually criticizing, correcting you didn't quite get the shading right, or gas pastor. You said the wrong Bible address. Are those issues potentially important? Yeah, but usually they're just picadillos. It's not the way I would phrase it. I don't think I'd say it that way. And so we go about the business of just e ee ee ee, 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 one another. That's not discernment. Rule of engagement. Rule number four. Anytime a fellow Christian acts in a questionable way, We judge. We are to point out sin in one another. But before you become the church busybody, there are some sins we judge and other sins we overlook. And you and I should be wise enough to know the difference. A scowling face toward a child that maybe looked kind of nasty. okay, that's a sin. But it's not to the level of a parent who just kid. Okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. One we gotta deal with. The other one, we can let go. Can't we? Number five. If someone commits a gross sin like murder or rape, we judge them. Number six. If someone lives in an ongoing lifestyle of unrepentant sin of any kind, we judge them. Number seven. If someone is sinning in a way that brings public dishonor to God, you got it, we judge them. And finally, number eight, if someone is growing in holiness and commits a one-off sin, we do not judge them. Do you see the difference when it comes to our interpersonal relationships inside of the church? Somebody commits a whopper. Yikes, somebody's not repenting of a sin. It's time for church discipline. But if a believer, they're growing in holiness, you see a fruit in their life. You see them volunteering more, serving more, giving more. And then you hear about something. Yes, it's a sin, but it's not an ongoing unrepentant sin. We can overlook some of these things, can't we?
0: That is from Wretched Wretched on um, YouTube at uh, WRETCGD, Wretched, and also Wretched.org. They have a, um, the one that I just played was from their TV show, and they have a radio show, too, or also known as podcast. And, um, so check that out at wretched.org, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D.org. And, um, they got a lot of good stuff up there. they got also, um... Like they said, they were talking about Judge Not. It's one of his um his books, and you can get that there on Richard Wretched and org and check out their stuff. They have two things. First and Truth Be Told Radio. Let's see, all I do now is play a song from Goldfishes' Walk With God.
11: On our Facebook Like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D R A D I O dot Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those email to truthbetoldradioshow Radio Show at gmail.com. Remember, T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username links. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa canchoa the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S M I L E S A N D S T U F F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.